When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Subi Ratio, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we are joined by Nick Smith, who is Assistant Professor of Architecture and Urban Studies at Bernard College, Columbia University. Nick is joining me to talk about his book, The End of the Village, Planning the Urbanization of Rural China, published in 2021 by University of Minnesota Press. Since the beginning of the 21st century, China has vastly expanded its urbanization processes in an effort to reduce the inequalities between urban and rural areas. Centered on the mountainous region of Chongqing, which serves as an experimental site for the country's new urban development policies, the end of the village analyzes the radical expansion of urbanization and its consequences for Chinese villages. Through this expansion, Nick Smith reveals how organized rural life is replaced by urbanized landscapes dominated by state institutions. Offering an unprecedented look at the country's contentious shift in urban planning and policy, the end of the village exposes the precarious future of rural life in China, whilst at the same time proposing a critical reappraisal of how we think about urbanization. I will be discussing the book in more detail with Nick Smith, who I have the pleasure of joining me on the show today. Nick, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hi, Suvi. It's good to be here. I'd like to begin um, the the podcast series by asking about your background and research interests. What drove you to conduct research on planning the urbanization of rural China? For me, it's really um, always been about China's villages and uh, its villagers. Uh, So in the early 2000s, um, I was in China doing uh, uh, research on historic preservation of vernacular architecture in rural villages. And I kept encountering villages that were undergoing sort of rapid processes of transformation, urbanization, land use change, uh, intensification, et cetera, um, even in relatively remote areas. Uh, And, you know, I was seeing how challenging it was for the residents in these villages, for the leaders of these villages uh, to adapt to this rapid change. And so I, I became really interested just as I was doing sort of this research on historic preservation, I became much more interested in how these other villages and villagers uh, were navigating these um, processes of of rapid urbanization um, in which, you know, 
the landscapes and the communities that these people had known for basically their entire lives are fundamentally changed within uh, a period of just a few years. Uh, and, you know, it, these, these processes of sort of informal village urbanization have obviously been an important part of China's reform era, you know, from the very early 1980s. Uh, and, you know, listeners of the podcast will probably be familiar with things like villages in the city, especially in, you know, southern cities like Shenzhen in Guangzhou. Uh, but in the early reform era, in the 80s and 90s, these sorts of processes had largely been concentrated in more developed coastal processes, uh, pr- sorry, coastal provinces. Um, and what I was seeing in the early 2000s, even though I didn't really realize it at the time, was sort of the earliest leading edge of what I have come to understand as you know, a, a new direction in China's urban and rural development policy um, that begins in the early 2000s with this policy of urban-rural coordination, which is the focus of the book, uh, with ultimately with quite dramatic consequences uh, for China's rural inhabitants. And so that is really, it's, it's that experience beginning in the early 2000s, sort of engaging with um, villages that are sort of beginning to experience um, this process of transformation that really motivated uh, the work that's in the book. Right. And perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit more about urban rural coordination scheme that your that your study focuses on. Um, and how was how were your field sites transformed by this scheme? So urban rural coordination uh, is first announced in 2003 uh, by the what was then the newly installed administration of Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao um, as part of their larger policy platform of scientific development, which includes five different coordinations. And one of those coordinations is urban-rural coordination. And it's really formulated as a, a, a national response to what had been at that time sort of a growing crisis of rural development that emerges over uh, the course of the 1990s. So, you know, to to sort of understand where urban-rural coordination comes from, we sort of have to, you know, go back in time a little bit and and take a look at sort of the beginnings of the reform era, uh, where, you know, starting in the 80s, but especially uh, in the 90s after the Southern Tour and fiscal reform in 1994, uh, China's you know very rapid urbanization uh, increasingly comes at the expense of rural areas, uh, which are you know formally separated from urban areas through uh, institutions like household registration or huko. Uh, the land system is also divided along urban and rural lines, um, and yet these. These rural areas, even though they're formally separated from urban areas, are nevertheless in- informally entangled in urban development um, through, for instance, you know, rural to urban migration. Right? It's it's possible to migrate from rural to urban areas, and yet it's not possible to move your official huko. And the result of this is that rural areas are increasingly treated as sort of a reservoir of things like labor and land and capital, 
that feed and uh, and stabilize and resolve problems within uh, the process of urban development. And you know that's great for China's cities. Uh, it, it results in this you know process of you know extraordinarily rapid urbanization, especially in the '90s. Uh, it, it sort of makes the, the, the Chinese economic miracle possible. Uh, but on the other hand, it's really bad for rural areas. And we end up with things like hollowed out villages where, you know, all of the working age population has moved to cities and only sort of children and the elderly are left behind. Uh, a, a steep decline in the amount of arable land, in agricultural productivity, um, Something like 80-85% of China's villages are uh, deeply in debt by the end of the 90s, sort of rising rates of suicide. Um, and this sort of comes to a head in the 90s uh, with this wave of rural protests um, over uh, extractive agricultural taxes. Um, and all of that sort of obviously sort of attracts the attention of the government. We get this sort of emerging discourse um, around uh, what is called the three rural problems. Uh, so uh, concerns about declines in agricultural productivity, um, the insufficiency of farmers' incomes, uh, and the sort of underdevelopment of village infrastructure. Uh, and so there's this, this sort of growing concern with the rural development crisis and what China's going to do about that. And yet, at the very same time in the late 90s, it becomes increasingly clear that China's development still very much depends on urbanization. That's especially true after 1997 and the Asian financial crisis, which the Chinese government sort of wards off by investing heavily in infrastructure expansion and taking the guardrails off of real, the real estate industry. Uh, and so Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao come to power in 2002 faced with this contradiction, sort of caught between a rock and a hard place, which is the need to reinvest in rural areas and yet the necessity of continuing to extract resources from rural areas to feed urbanization. And it is urban-rural coordination which emerges at this time as the main policy response. Um, and it really, you know, it, it's quite wide-ranging, um, it, like many national policies, it's quite flexible um, and in some instances ambiguous. It sort of allows for different kinds of interpretation on the ground. Uh, but it, it essentially serves as a policy framework that is aimed at recalibrating China's urban-rural relations uh, to revise some of these administrative divisions like Hukou and to in, therefore encourage urban resources to sort of flow towards rural areas uh, to get, um, you know, one of the phrases that is used to describe urban-rural coordination is that industry now supports agriculture and cities carry the countryside rather than vice versa. So the idea is that rural people under urban-rural coordination are supposed to be able to finally reap the benefits of China's rapid urbanization. However, at the same time, that doesn't mean that the Chinese state is turning away from cities, right? Urban-rural coordination is not just about investing in rural areas. It's also meant to further accelerate urbanization, to achieve a kind of win-win 
um, between urban and rural development. Uh, and this is where we find the sort of inherent tension in urban-rural coordination, because in its implementation, when it gets sort of interpreted and implemented by local officials, these, you know, perhaps well-intentioned initiatives for rural development um, ultimately often end up being in service of the urban and urbanization and urban interests. Uh, so, and, and the ultimate outcome of that, which, you know, sort of I outline in the book, is, is not so much a rural development program as it is this sort of new, radical, exponential expansion of urbanization beyond the limits of China's cities to encompass, you know, nearly all of China's territory uh, and population. And we see this again and again in, you know, a variety of programs and policies that get slotted in as part of urban-rural coordination, um, where, you know, gains in rural welfare are inevitably tied to this increasing integration into processes of urban expansion and increasing integration into um, sort of uh, institutions that are controlled by uh, the state. So just to give you an example of that, one of the earliest policies under urban-rural coordination is the abolition of agricultural taxes, which had been you know, the source of these protests in rural areas in the 90s, which is great for, for a lot of rural people, right? It sort of it increases um, welfare for um, many farming households, although not all. Uh, but at the same time, by eliminating these agricultural taxes, the state also essentially eviscerates the financial and organizational basis for collective action in villages to provide things like irrigation um, and you know healthcare and other sort other kinds of services and infrastructure. And so, to make up for that, to make up for the fact that villages have you know lost these resources and these capabilities. The state then launches the Socialist New Countryside campaign in 2005, which you know, is a, a mechanism for directing state resources to rural areas in order to make up this gap, um, which, you know, in fact, provides some achievements. It, provide, it does sort of in some areas provide sort of new housing, new infrastructure, things like that. Um, but it also increases these villages' dependence on state redistribution and planning, and in particular, it increases their dependence on towns, which have their own problems, right? Um, their own sort of fiscal gaps. Uh, and at the same time, it incentivizes processes of rural urbanization uh, with policies that sort of encourage migration to towns and the resettlement and consolidation of villages and land use intensification um, and the construction of like new high-rise housing, um, agricultural industrialization, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that dynamic uh, that then, you know, sort of continues through the 2000s and ultimately becomes clarified in 2014 when Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, who take over from Hu Jintao and Wen Xiaobao, uh, announce the National Plan for New Type Urbanization, which I really see as essentially an extension and intensification of urban-rural coordination, um, but now with a much more explicit objective of 
resolving China's urban-rural contradictions um, by proactively urbanizing the rural, right? It's new type urbanization. We're, we're going out there with this plan to actually expressly to urbanize rural areas. Um, but all of that, all of that, um, all of those policies that are bound up in new type urbanization all trace back to the sort of turning point in the early 2000s and the announcement of urban-rural coordination in 2003. So the, the focus of the book, that's sort of the starting point of the book, but the, the book really focuses more specifically on the sort of earliest experiments in implementing urban-rural coordination at a local level, because it's really sort of, you know, the, the national policy environment, again, the, these national policies can be quite vague and open-ended and flexible. And so you don't really get a sense of what they look like until you look at what, how they're implemented uh, at a local level. Uh, and so in 2007, uh, the municipalities of Chongqing and Chengdu are designated as the first two national experimental sites uh, for urban-rural coordination. Uh, and uh, my work is focused primarily on Chongqing um, in part because I think it is the more challenging of the two. You know, Chongqing is this huge uh, provincial level municipality. It's essentially the size of Ireland. It's got 32 million people. It has this gigantic mountainous rural hinterland. Um, it's a place where the challenges of urban, rural urban and rural development in China really sort of come into focus. Uh, and so it's a, it's a super interesting place to look at some of these dynamics. And then inside of Chongqing, you know, I, I did a bunch of work at sort of a, a municipal scale, but then I really zeroed in on um, a particular village, uh, which is Hailong, uh, which is sort of right on the western edge of expansion for the city. Um, and, you know, I, I chose Hailong uh, in large part because it's a it's a place where these contradictions between urban and rural development really um, sort of come into focus. Uh, and, um, and the book essentially explores how all of these different actors in this place and especially in this village. So, you know, planners and policymakers in the municipality, uh, the leaders, the cadres who uh, lead this village, the, um, the registered villagers and the migrants who live in the village, how all of these different actors are all trying to essentially figure out how to resolve these challenges of rural development and urban-rural contradiction, and also what urban-rural coordination actually means, because nobody really knows what it's going to look like and what the future of villages um, is going to be. Uh, and they all have different answers. And the, the sort of the real um, sort of narrative push of the book comes out in how these different visions of um, the of the urban future of rural areas, what rural urbanization is going to look like, how all these different visions um, collide in the transformation of, of this one village. Right. Thank you so much. That was a fantastic overview. Um, let's dive in more into the contents of the book. Um, in chapter one, you look at the planning and the history of scientific rationalization in these um, state-led projects, such as the urban-rural coordination scheme, as you just described in more detail. Um, 
But I really found this so fascinating, this idea of scientific rationalization in the planning and the dynamic tension between science and politics in um, contemporary urban planning. Um, but perhaps you could tell us a bit more about this tension that comes to the fore um, across municipal planners and policymakers who are responsible for implementing urban rural coordination schemes, such as the one you observed in Chongqing. Yeah, um, so urban planning plays this um, kind of interesting role in contemporary China uh, that is somewhat distinctive from um, uh, how it plays, how urban planning plays out in um, other parts of the world, uh, especially in uh, Europe and North America, which is, you know, a, a lot of sort of urban planning theory comes out of um, sort of Euro-American experiences. And there's been a push recently to, um, to decolonize that body of theory and to sort of to start to figure out how urban planning uh, happens in other parts of the world. Um, and in China, uh, you know, urban planning does a lot of things, but, but one of the things that it does is it provides this veneer of scientific rationality that is used to justify the state's political decisions on development. And then on the other hand, so, so planners provide this, this sort of service to China's you know, political leaders in the party that um, sort of uh, prov to, that sort of authorizes their you know, essentially paternalist decisions about urban development. And then on the other hand, planners very much rely on those political decisions that are made by party leaders as the essential starting point for planning processes. And that is, um, you know, particularly well represented. There's this uh, phrase that you encounter among Chinese planners uh, that is essentially switch a leader, switch a plan. Uh, right. Every time you get a new leader in a municipality, um, you get a new plan because all of the parameters and the priorities change. Uh, and this uh, tension between uh, planners who um, sort of subscribe and aspire to uh, the standard of scientific rationality and on the other hand, uh, political and their reliance on the sort of political decisions made by party leaders uh, is um, it becomes really clear in the division between urban and rural areas. Uh, and in particular, what is referred to as the urban construction boundary, uh, which is sort of the, the line that divides formally designated urban land from formally designated rural land in China. And traditionally, the practice of urban planning only applies to officially designated urban land, uh, where, you know, urban planning is for urban land. And then rural, rural areas are sort of subject to sort of a different set of processes and standards and, you know, uh, oftentimes aren't even sort of subject to planning. Now, that being said, planners themselves are not empowered to decide where that line should be drawn. That is ultimately a political decision. And so they rely on political leaders to define the scope 
of urban development. And it's really only then that urban planning can begin, right? Because it is at that point that planners have an object to plan. They know what it is, the sort of area that they're planning. And planners are then called upon to, you know, rationalize urban development within those boundaries to make it more scientific, to make it more rational, to um, ensure that the, um, the, the sort of the scope of urban development that political leaders have decided makes sense. And, and the, the, um, what is particularly challenging about that is that really the only way to do that, the only way to ensure that scientific quality of the planning is to, on the other hand, export all of the inevitable irrationalities of urbanization beyond the urban construction boundary to rural areas and sort of, you know, just say, well, that's the rural. We don't plan the rural. Rural areas can worry about it. Um, and and the, the sort of the inevitable outcome of that is, you know, as all of these, you know, irrationalities like, you know, infrastructure networks and, um, you know, uh, land expropriation, um, migrant housing and things like that, um, that, you know, planners don't fully, can't fully deal with within the city. All of this ends up sort of expanding out into rural areas and ultimately expanding urbanization beyond the boundary, uh, which then becomes essentially obsolete. And so we see this repeated cycle in Chinese urban planning where the urban construction boundary is, is almost out of date, almost before it's even established in a plan, uh, which becomes this sort of sore spot for planning uh, because it exposes you know, the very unscientific and political underpin, uh, underpinnings of planning practice. Uh, and so, you know, th that's how planning has sort of operated for much of the reform era. And then in, in the 2000s, we get urban-rural coordination, and in particular, as sort of part of urban-rural coordination, we get the revision of urban planning law in 2007. And it it's the you know, a lot of things happen in that revision, but one of the sort of chief things is that it is changed from being the urban planning law to being the urban rural planning law. And urban and rural areas are sort of all consolidated under one um, legal framework. Uh, and this is supposed to, in part, resolve some of these, um, you know, uh, these, these problems in terms of the separation of urban and rural areas. Uh, and, and that, you know, potentially poses, um, it, it potentially offers an opportunity for planners, right? Because now the, the scope and scale of their authority has been expanded to rural areas, at least formally. But on the other hand, it also poses a potential challenge because now instead of only being responsible for rationalizing what's inside of the urban construction boundary, they're suddenly, in theory at least, responsible for the entire territory of China, right? This sort of vastly larger area. Um, and, and we see that play out in Chongqing uh, in the late 2000s, where the responsibility of the planning bureau is suddenly expanded to not just include the sort of various towns and cities and the area inside their respective urban construction boundaries, uh, but in addition to that, 
the you know 8,000 plus rural villages that are scattered across Chongqing's territory. Um, places where the planning bureau has you know very little data and where already the underlying sort of irrationality of urban development is already becoming clear in various ways. So in the late 2000s, Chongqing, the, the planning bureau, um, is faced with this challenge of how to restore scientific quality uh, and scientific rationality to the planning process. And one of the ways that they do this is to essentially to reproduce the urban rural division inside of the planning bureau. Um, and so they, they establish a rural planning division um, that is created and made responsible for the planning of all of Chongqing's villages. While on the other hand, the planning of urban areas continues on essentially as before, essentially ignoring the irrationalities produced in rural areas that now the rural planning division you know, is responsible for. Uh, and then the other thing that they do is they try to redefine villages as functional extensions of cities. Um, as for instance, you know, uh, suburban bedroom communities or industrialized farms or, you know, touristic leisure landscapes that are defined in their relationship to the city. Um, all, all of which sort of have less to do with what rural residents themselves actually need and their lives. Um, and they are, in fact, increasingly encouraged through, you know, a variety of policies like hukou reform and land reform in Chongqing. Increased villagers are incre increasingly encouraged to give up their land and to leave the village and to move to cities and towns into, um, you know, the expanding public housing program in Chongqing. Um, and, and what these sort of reimagined villages actually do, rather than sort of focusing on rural residents, is to instead be providing a set of goods and services for urban consumers. Uh, and so essentially what we end up with, or what I argue um, for in the book, is that these villages are not really villages anymore so much as they are simulacra of villages. Uh, they're villages that have been effectively reimagined by urban planners according to um, a sort of aestheticized urban imaginary of what the rural should be, uh, rather than um, villages that really uh, truly serve the needs and interests of villagers. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, that really comes out more in more detail in chapter two, where you describe how Hailong specifically transformed from a poverty-stricken village into a vibrant industrial estate. So here we really see this procedure that you were just describing of urbanization. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about what it means to transform into a village growth machine. What does this term itself mean and how did you apply it in your book? So the starting point for uh, chapter two is, um, you know, e each of the first three chapters is organized according to these, you know, these particular actors, right? So the first chapter we just talked about is municipal planners and policymakers. This chapter really deals with um, the village cadres. Uh, and then the third chapter um, deals with uh, the residents of the village of the village themselves. Uh, and for the village cadres, the starting point is how they are responding to 
this rural development crisis and how they're, you know, trying to dig their village out of debt um, and out of a sort of political legitimacy crisis. Uh, and that really becomes a question of how you mobilize for collective action in a situation where your village has no assets, right, is, is actually is already in debt. The bank won't lend you money because you don't have any, um, uh, any, any assets. Uh, when most of your working age population has migrated away from the village and where there is a leadership vacuum, uh, where the villagers really don't trust uh, their cadres. Uh, and, you know, there's been a variety of um, developmental models that have been put forward in uh, the China studies literature to sort of understand how village transformation happens. Uh, and those include things like, you know, local state corporatism, uh, where village leaders reorganize their villages as uh, sort of like consolidated corporations. Um, and uh, cadre entrepreneurialism, where, you know, these successful businessmen come back to the village and use their connections and know-how to sort of jumpstart the village economy. Uh, and then there's also um, sort of more um, moralistic models where um, cadre's membership in um, what are called solidary organizations, like lineage institutions and churches, can motivate them to uh, provide uh, public goods. And, you know, all of these were at work in Heilong. We see uh, sort of examples of, of each of these models uh, in what the leaders are doing. Uh, but there was also this other dynamic that I observed uh, in Heilong, which was um, this push towards resource extraction. Uh, and it, this is sort of a more like accumulation driven approach that um, hasn't been as um, deeply considered uh, in the literature, in part because it is often seen as being essentially predatory, right? As cadres extracting um, value from the village at the expense of villagers as a kind of local rent-seeking behavior. Um, but in, in Heilong, those things were true, right? And villagers were often upset uh, at how wealthy uh, some of their cadres became. Um, but it also produced this self-reinforcing cycle that encouraged leaders to keep pushing village growth. Uh, and that's where uh, sort of the idea of the growth machine uh, comes in. Um, so this is a, an idea that, you know, is originally articulated uh, in the 70s in reference to um, growth-minded cities in the United States. Um, the idea being that, you know, cities were being essentially taken over by these coalitions of local actors that were all committed to promoting more and more urban growth. Uh, and those coalitions were often uh, sort of led by property owners and real estate developers who can benefit from rising land prices. But, you know, uh, local governments also benefit from a growing tax base. Local newspapers, when that was still a thing, benefited from a growing subscriber base, et cetera, et cetera. All of these different actors and institutions that all get together to promote further urban development purely for the purpose of urban development, um, even when that might not necessarily be the best or more, most sustainable strategy. 
Um, so uh, growth machine originates in the U.S., has also been applied to China, although in China there's a significant twist where um, in China the state's ownership of urban land uh, really gives local governments, and usually when we're talking about local governments, usually we're talking about municipalities, uh, an outsized role in organizing uh, and driving growth. So it, it's not that real estate firms and property developers aren't part of the process. They certainly are. But it's really the local state uh, that drives uh, the growth machine, uh, which is something that um, you know, Yotian Singh has referred to as the urbanization of the local state. And, and the more local governments do this, uh, in fact, the more they rely on urban growth to deliver their agenda and secure their legitimacy, and therefore the more growth they have to deliver. So it produces this self-reinforcing cycle of um, urban development. Um, and, and one of the insights of, of this chapter in the book is that that's, that logic is not purely apl uh, applicable to China's cities. We see much the same dynamic uh, in certain villages, uh, which you know, are not technically part of the government. They're not actually part of the state, although they you know, are extensions of the party apparatus. Um, but you know, villages exercise effective ownership uh, over um, collective-owned village land. Uh, and the same incentives are in place for villages to, um, to encourage growth and uh, to try to sort of intensify the use of their land. And so, um, so in Hailong, uh, we get these village leaders who um, build this coalition uh, of, of party members, of entrepreneurs, business interests, and, you know, frankly, also uh, local mafia to invest in the village's development, to provide capital uh, to um, develop the village. And then, um, you know, they, they use some of that money to, um, to develop some of their agricultural land and to industrialize it. Uh, and, and then in a few years, they face, you know, the, the challenge of repaying those investments. And in order to do that, you know, they, they, they've earned some money, um, but they don't actually have enough to repay all of their creditors. And so they have to recruit more members to the coalition, more investors, and, and then create more village growth with bigger and better buildings and more intense, higher value land uses. And then they have to do it again uh, a few years later. And so Hailong goes through these, these multiple rounds of investment and development, um, you know, and, and first, this looks like sort of industrializing agricultural land, uh, and then they they build some apartment buildings and storefronts, and then they build bigger apartment buildings and bigger storefronts and a hotel and a conference center. Uh, and each round of, of this development incentivizes another round. In effect, you know they're they're constantly mortgaging the future to satisfy the present. Uh, and some you know perceptive villagers who were not, in, you know, some were happy to invest, but some were very much not interested. Um, and, and some of those villagers referred to this perceptively as a kind of developmental pyramid scheme, right? Um, which, you know, I, I think becomes one of the things that's useful about Hailong is it sort of crystallizes some of these processes in part because it's, it's you know, relatively small scale. And so the, um, 
the challenges of this process and the the sort of um, the uh, the weakness of this process um, or its uh, susceptibility to crisis uh, becomes especially self-evident in a case like Kailong uh, because it's relatively small. But in fact, those challenges are just as true at the much larger scale of China's megacities. Uh, and the question is really what happens when you know, the air starts coming out of the bubble or when the music stop, stops uh, and people start to doubt the future of the growth machine. Will it be able to continue to deliver growth? Uh, and, you know, and, and we see this, we see at least the potential hints of this to uh, right now in China with the Evergrande crisis. And the question becomes, you know, what happens next? Um, does the air actually start coming out of the bubble and how um, how will investors and households and real estate developers and the state um, all react to um, that slowing down of of the, the urban growth machine in China? Yeah, thank you so much. That was fantastic. Um, I wonder if we could now zoom in a bit more to the micro level of the inhabitants, the local population that you got to know during your research in Heilong. Um, um, in chapter three, you describe how the inhabitants grapple with the persistent exploitation to navigate the seams of urban rural difference. Can you tell us a bit more about this? How does human affect and affective practices that you write about provide rural urban strategies of survival for Hailong residents? Yeah, so, um, so Hailong residents, uh, like, you know, many rural people in China, um, feel quite abandoned and forgotten and exploited. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, especially clear uh, when it comes to conversations about state-sponsored welfare, uh, which most Hailong villagers did not view as, as either fair or reliable. Uh, and in, in that context, in the context of, you know, feeling exploited and, and feeling really left to their own devices uh, for much of the reform era, uh, rural people, you know, they didn't just give up, they, you know, developed their own informal welfare systems, informal social insurance to make sure that their families survived. Uh, and so, you know, that takes a couple of different forms. Uh, so one of the forms that it takes is uh, that village residents um, uh, often turned to uh, the these sort of networks of mutual support uh, in the village for for informal assistance when they fell upon upon hard times, uh, and that can mean anything from you know small gifts to meals to larger loans to uh, you know periodic childcare or elder care, uh, etc. Uh, and these networks um, operate on um, on principles of uh, what is called renqing, uh, which we might translate into um, English as human feeling. That's sort of the, the literal uh, translation. That's how it's often uh, rendered in, in English. Um, although I, I think renqing and human feeling also 
corresponds quite closely to the larger concept of affect uh, and affective relations. Um, and uh, and you know uh, your listeners might also be familiar with it as sort of a, a, a term that's associated with the more popular notion of guanxi. Um, but I I sort of I look at the the practice of wrenching um, through through the lens of of affect studies. Uh, and essentially, the idea here is that you are, as um, as a member of a community, you are connected with all of the people around you. And in fact, the the sort of starting point is not necessarily the individual; it's the network. And so, you, as an individual, are defined by your relations to um, to your family members and neighbors and friends, etc. Um, and those connections are. Um, built and reinforced through these, you know, everyday practices like gift giving or sharing a meal or, you know, engaging in some kind of celebration um, that, you know, each of those events sort of more strongly binds you uh, to your, your family and your neighbors and, and your friends, um, both because, that is what it means to be human, right? There's sort of an ideological, ethical element to this, um, but also more instrumentally because that because having these relationships means that you know you might be able to turn to them when times are tough. So there's you know the the affective and the instrumental are you know they're not separated here; they're deeply intertwined. Um, so, so that's sort of one set of strategies. Another, um, another set of things that residents did was to uh, develop uh, these sort of portfolio strategies of diversification uh, within their families, where you know different family members would um, would do different things. So, you know, one or two people would migrate. Uh, some people would like start a small business. Um, other members of the family would stay behind in the village and you know, take care of uh, the household's land. Um, and, and the safer and frankly less lucrative things like, you know, tending agricultural land would, um, which, you know, does not sort of give you much income, but is relatively stable. Uh, those sorts of things serve to cross-subsidize the riskier but more lucrative things like migration and entrepreneurship. And so there's sort of this, this larger portfolio strategy within the household or the extended family. And then, you know, I think the other thing to realize is that these different systems, so on the one hand, the sort of networks of mutual support and Ren Chang, and on the other, the, the sort of economic diversification, those systems work interdependently where the resources that are gained through diversification provide the inputs that are necessary for community networks of mutual support. And then the community networks of mutual support also provide the safety net for people um, when those new ventures don't work out, right? When, um, or when disaster strikes. And, you know, uh, these, these sorts of practices aren't uh, necessarily unique uh, to, to China. Uh, you find them, you know, there, there are different versions of them are relatively common um, across uh, much of the global south um, and, and frankly, in the global north. Uh, 
but one of the the sort of the main insights of the chapter is that um, these various strategies um, are they're deeply inscribed into the built environment of the village. Uh, so, you know, to take uh, wrenching uh, and the networks of mutual support, those connections are very much built through, at one level, through families' cohabitation in their self-built housing, where they encounter each other every day and like different branches of the family sort of encounter each other and sort of can, can pool resources and help each other out. And then also at another level through um, neighbors' daily encounters in the various interstitial spaces of the village, uh, which include, you know, courtyards uh, and uh, road crossings and mahjong parlors uh, where, you know, residents spend a lot of their time, their free time. And then on the other hand, the, the economic diversification stuff also, you know, very much relies on the sort of the physical incarnation of the family in the site of the self-built house. Because, you know, when everybody's scattered to various corners of China for migration and entrepreneurship, it can be the, the idea of the family can become quite abstract. And that physical embodiment in the house, you know, it, it both, it provides a safe haven for people to return to when things like migration don't work out. Uh, but it also serves to embody that anticipated future reunification of the family um, when you know enough resources have been gathered, uh, and so it's not a coincidence that you know significant portions of migrant remittances are invested in the construction of village housing. Right, that it's done because that is an asset, um, right? But it's not just an asset; it's also this physical manifestation of the household and uh, and its survival strategy, uh, and so. You know, when we think about rural welfare, oftentimes the emphasis is placed on agricultural land as a substitute for formal state-sponsored welfare. And one of the arguments I make in this chapter is, well, that's true, but even more important than that is the village itself and one's membership and physical presence and connection to uh, the socio-spatial fabric of the village. Uh, and when that's taken away, um, as for instance, through some of these processes of urban rural coordination that are being implemented by the municipality, uh, it can be quite destabilizing uh, and alienating for the members of the village. Absolutely. Um, well, so far we've been talking about the municip municipal planners, the cadre and the community just now. I wonder if we could turn to look behind um, the value of, of property, which you write about in more detail in chapter four, um, where you highlight the dependence that the value of land has on the exercising, uh, 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 sorry, on the exercise of planning powers. Can you describe these processes through your research in Heidelang? How does the value of property and planning coalesce? Yeah, so I mentioned before how, you know, planning in China is, is somewhat different than the way it's conceptualized in um, places like the U.S. or, you know, parts of Europe, um, where, you know, in, in many Western countries, planning is premised on 
in, in large part on the private ownership of land, where you know one of one of the arguments, not the only argument, but one of the arguments for urban planning is that it serves to constrain the free exercise of property rights uh, in order to protect the larger public interest. Where you know if private property owners were just doing whatever they wanted with their land, it you know the city would be a mess, right? We would have you know, smoke belching factories next to high-rise apartment buildings. Um, in China, we don't actually have private land ownership in the same way, or at least we don't have what's called fee-simple land ownership, because all urban land is ultimately owned by the state. Uh, and then in rural areas, most rural land is owned by rural collectives. Uh, we do have um, fixed term land use rights, which can be held by private individuals and organizations. And so in that sense, we have a version of private land ownership. But again, it's um, the ultimate ownership of urban land inheres in the state. And the state is also the planning authority. And so this means that urban planning doesn't just serve to constrain the exercise of, of private land users. It also serves to support state land ownership. And in particular, to maximize the value of that ownership because local governments are quite dependent on income from land development for um, their fiscal health. Uh, and you know, one of the arguments I make in this chapter is that the, as a result of that, urban planning powers in China can actually be thought of as a kind of property right, as essentially an extension of state land ownership. Now, where this gets somewhat complicated uh, is um, in cases where the authority to exercise land ownership is contested. So, you know, ju just staying with urban land, all urban land in China is technically owned by the state, but the state is very big uh, and Beijing is far away. And so, you know, the state council uh, does not directly exercise its ownership over every parcel of land. That, um, that authority to, uh, to exercise state ownership is devolved to uh, local governments. Uh, and in most cases at this point, um, that is relatively uncomplicated. In most cases, it is, for instance, a municipal government, which um, sort of exercises consolidated um, uh, consolidated control over state, uh, state land ownership. Um, but there are in, in instances where uh, that authority is contested. And so we encounter this sometimes uh, in urban areas where, you know, large state-owned enterprises that have sort of uh, legacy uh, parcels of land from the socialist era, um, they control these like big portions of urban land and are able to push back against uh, municipal power. Uh, that doesn't happen all the time, but we do see it occasionally. And then the other place that we see it is in areas of urban expansion. Uh, where municipal efforts to expropriate rural land um, run up against 
in, in some instances, run up against these strong village collectives that you know, really don't want to give their land up. Uh, and that is what we find in Heilong, uh, where you know, we have this village collective. Uh, and on the other hand, this village collective that you know, is um, economically quite strong uh, and uh, you know, politically very tapped into um, political networks. It is um, for you know, the late 2000s and early 2010s, um, supported by uh, the party secretary in Chongqing at the time, Bo Xilai, um, who of course uh, you know is removed from office uh, and um, uh, and charged with corruption and loses his party standing uh, you know after uh, 2012. Um, but but at the time in the late 2000s, early 2010s, uh, Haiwang is really sort of tapped in. Um, so you have this this relatively strong village collective, and then on the other hand. A provincial level municipality, also quite powerful, um, and you know they end up in this place where uh, they each have something that the other wants, uh, and so they end up having to negotiate uh, who is going to get to control which parts of the village, uh, and part of that is also a trading of planning powers back and forth as part of um, the trading of land ownership. Uh, and so um, what we end up seeing uh, is that planning powers over a portion of the village uh, are actually ceded to the village collective so that the village is able to ensure that the land that they're going to keep um, is actually going to hold its value and that they're going to be able to do what they want with it. And that is something that, at least in the formal definition of the Chinese planning system, isn't supposed to be able to happen, right? Villages aren't supposed to be able to plan themselves. Um, that's supposed to be done by some state authority, usually, you know, in the town or the township. Uh, and so, you know, what, what we see in Heilong, again, is this, you know, because of the political contestation that happens, we're, we're able to sort of peel back the, the formal rhetoric and the sort of official way that things are supposed to happen and actually see the very sort of messy, um, political process of negotiation and coordination that happens between these different elements of the party state in order to resolve these conflicts and contradictions that arise in the process of urban development. Right. Um, and then in chapter five, you look into themes such as land commodification, shareholding, and self-urbanization. And you use this term village as the city. What do you mean by village as a city and how does Heilong fit into its definition? So I, I mentioned earlier, um, I think the, the term village in the city, uh, which in Chinese is Changzhongzun, um, which, you know, I, I imagine some of your listeners might be familiar with. Um, these are villages that have been um, surrounded by uh, the formal fabric of the city um, but that the municipality, for whatever reason, has allowed to remain in place. Um, and then what we get is, you know, increasing um, urbanization and intensification of land use in the village itself, because the value of its land increases as a function of being sort of in the midst of the city. And there is more demand for housing and services, etc. cetera. Uh, and, um, and these villages, uh, the, the, these villages in the city, uh, are often treated as problems uh, by urban planners in China. 
um, because you know they're they they're not part of the formal fabric of the city, right? Um, and you know the streets are narrow; it's difficult to provide services. Um, you know they're they're perceived as these sites of of crime and vice, um, and and to be irrational, right? Remember, the planners are all about scientific rationality and, and villages are, are very, quite irrational or they seem irrational uh, in, in that system. And so there's been a, a substantial push over the last uh, 10 or 20 years um, to get rid of these villages, um, you know, especially in cities where they're quite common, like uh, Shenzhen or Guangzhou. You know, we, we see them um, it, we see them in various places, but they're uh, particularly common uh, in the South. Um, and you know, this was a term that uh, was also applied to Heilong um, by planners in Chongqing, uh, who some of whom advocated demolishing it uh, and replacing it with you know state plan development, some sort of a, a municipal development zone. Uh, and so the 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 title of this chapter, "Villages the City," uh, is is sort of a play on the term "village in the city." Uh, and and it is intended to point at how Heilong's village leaders sought to escape the the sort of the the discipline of um, municipal planning and expansion and expropriation by turning the village into a city in its own right, uh, and so and they they um, branded this as Heilong City. And in essence, what they were trying to do was to rescale the policies of urban-rural coordination that Chongqing had introduced at you know, a municipal scale of you know, 32 million people, uh, to rescale those policies down to the territory of a single village, and, and to thereby to transcend China's urban-rural contradictions by simultaneously remaining officially and administratively a village, but functionally providing all of the benefits and infrastructure and services of a city. Uh, and so, you know, they did this first by um, sort of doing an end run around state restrictions on rural re real estate development um, in order to commodify Heilong's land and to build this you know, truly gigantic commercial real estate complex uh, and then the other thing they did was they um, they sort of redefined their villagers as shareholders uh, in this new real estate enterprise, uh, which enabled them to um, sort of take more liberties in village development and uh, to um, to commodify village land uh, and to again to sort of intensify village land use and sort of provide these various. Um, urban services. The, pr the problem is that in, in doing all of that, in maximizing the economic value of the village, the village's leaders also, in essence, drained the village of, its, um, of the value that it held for villagers as a village, right? Like all of those social networks and, and sort of household strategies, all of that stuff um, all of the moral claims on the village, all of those ethical networks of wrenching and mutual support, all are displaced as more and more of the village is demolished. And 
um, and are then increasingly replaced by um, by essentially by financial claims on investments that are in fact quite risky uh, and that no one in the village or none of the villagers at least really know anything about uh, and they don't you know they don't know how much they're worth um, and they also don't know who else is invested uh, in these projects and who you know also has claims uh, on these developments uh, and so you know it's it becomes um, it in it, the the irony here is that in the very act of saving the village from municipal expansion and expropriation under the municipal program of urban rural coordination in the very act of trying to save the village the village's leaders also essentially um, destroy the the village or what makes the village meaningful uh, to its inhabitants right thank you so much nick um one thing we haven't spoken about yet is the experiences of displacement, which you write about in chapter six, um, to explore villagers' responses to the end of the village as sites of grassroots social organization and the displacement of both the village's institutions and its inhabitants. Through these responses, you describe how ghost talk becomes a means for villagers to express the nostalgic loss and traumatic exclusion that they experience through deterioration. Can you describe these processes to our listeners, um, specifically focusing on how ghost talk enter conversations between Highlong residents and yourself? Yeah, so um, as, as this process of development uh, for Highlong City uh, moved ahead, uh, you know, more and more of the village gets demolished and people get displaced. Uh, and uh, as that was happening, as I was sort of on the ground in the village, uh, and, and in particular, um, sort of as I returned, so I, the the sort of greatest, the largest body of my research was in 2011, 2012, but you know, I, I returned for several years uh, after that. Um, and each time I came back, I encountered this sort of, what was then this sort of perplexing phenomenon where you know every time I would ask, or, or not every time, but often when I would ask villagers uh, to to talk about their feelings about the about Highlong City and village development, uh, they would dodge my questions. They like they weren't willing to actually talk about the village development, and instead, oftentimes they would make some sort of like oblique reference to ghosts. And I came to realize that talking about ghosts provided what I would call a, a sort of a culturally appropriate way, like a, a, a sort of a culturally efficacious way for villagers to express their very deep, unease with the transformation of their of their village. Uh, and, and to understand why that is and sort of what ghosts do, um, you kind of need to understand a little bit about like what ghosts do in, in Chinese religious practice. So, um, so traditionally in China, um, 
where you know where there's this practice of ancestor worship, uh, and you know deceased ancestors are are sort of ritually worshipped as um, as benevolent, um, but potentially hazardous uh, if you know they're not appropriately worshipped um, spiritual forces. So that's one side is um, ancestral spirits. And then on the other side are ghosts who are essentially are the inverse of ancestral spirits. So ghosts are the dead who have not been properly recognized or socialized as ancestors through the appropriate rituals. Um, and, and as a result, ghosts are, you know, they're, they're asocial uh, and, or they're antisocial. Uh, and, um, and they, you know, they can include people who aren't part of the community. They can include strangers. They can include, um, uh, you know, uh, in sort of traditional practice, they can include, uh, thieves, um, brigands, um, uh, you know, in, in anybody who is, um, a, a social vector, right. Who is a potentially potential threat to the community, it sort of corresponds to the ghostly. Um, so when people talk about ghosts in Heilong, what they're what they're really talking about is the absence of community, or the you know alternatively the disintegration of their social world, um, and that's you know precisely what we see in the construction of Heilong City, which involves the, the demolition of villagers' self-built housing, where, you know, remember all of their, their strategies of mutual support and diversification and survival are located. And then, you know, following that demolition, their forced relocation into high-rise housing, where, you know, not only are they potentially going to be separated from their social networks, but they're now going to be living alongside strangers, right? These new residents from other parts of Chongqing who have bought apartments in this development um, and who aren't part of their networks and, you know, who might not even, like, know how to respect the practices of Renqing that, you know, these villagers have relied on for their entire lives. Uh, and all of this is, of course, you know, deeply unsettling uh, for villagers. Uh, and you know they, they didn't they didn't take it lying down, right? Like um, many of the villagers uh, pushed back against uh, the development projects. Um, they you know um, they they protested against uh, their village leadership. Um, they criticized their leaders. Um, but actually, Heilong's leaders were, were quite effective at shutting down um, expressions of dissent. Um, and in particular, they, they sort of did this interesting thing that sort of short-circuited what is a very common mode of expressing opposition to local policies, where protesters in China will mobilize the, the sort of rhetoric and ideology of the Communist Party to criticize the practices of their local leaders, essentially saying that their, their local leaders are not sort of obeying the law or not obeying the principles of the party, um, which is something that, you know, sometimes gets called raising the red flag. Um, 
sometimes is referred to as rightful resistance. But in the case of Heilong, Heilong's leaders had very cleverly already appropriated that rhetoric and sort of enrobed the village development project in the, um, the sort of rhetoric and ideology of the Communist Party, and at the same time, recruited the endorsement of senior party leaders. And so this practice of rightful resistance just wasn't available to village residents, right? Uh, and so the language of ghosts is, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's a last resort. It's this, it's this next level of, um, of, of it, this next ideological landscape or terrain that can be drawn on as, you know, a set of, of cultural and religious symbols that residents can mobilize to obliquely criticize um, their leadership and to express their um, sort of dissent and their disease, their unease uh, with the village development project. Thank you so much, Nick. Um, now we're moving on to the conclusion. And um, this is something I really wanted to ask you as I was reading your book. Um, it's just how, um, how much does Hailong reflect what's happening across China? Because there are numerous villages, especially across mountainous um, province regions or landlocked provinces such as Guizhou, where I completed my field work um, a couple of years back in a Dong ethnic minority village, which to this day is still very much organized around rural life and tightly knit networks of mutual supports and social relations with both living and the dead. Any signs of replacing the countryside with urbanized landscape is very far from reality, even though that's something that the local inhabitants would like to see. So Hailong is, after all, a very particular case study. It's peri-urban. It's located in close proximity to urban infrastructure and markets. It's under the radar of numerous political patrons, and its designation as a site of, of experimental sorry, a site of experimentation for village development, as you've, you've described throughout this conversation. So my question is, are the changes that you observed in Hailong representative of the workings across um, rural development across the country and of what you call China's new era of urbanization? Yeah, it, it's a great point. Um, and it's um, something that I thought a lot about uh, in, uh, in doing the research and writing the book uh, and that I continue to think about um, in, uh, you know, uh, in in my current work, um, where you know, of course, as you say, Heilong is is very unique, right? It's 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 geography on the sort of urban rural edge. Uh, it's dynamic economy. It's access to networks of political patronage. All of these things make it quite distinctive. Uh, and it's true that you know most villages do in China don't have that kind of economic and political power. Um, many of them are much more remote uh, than Heilong. Um, you know, they, they don't have the resources to take on um, the municipal government. Uh, and in all of those respects, you know, we need to be very careful about directly extrapolating from Heilong's experience to explain what is happening or what might happen in any other village in China. Right. Could be, and, and in particular, because each village in China is, you know, is equally unique and distinctive. Right. Uh, that being said, I also think that, 
you know, the very things that make Highlong unique also make it a, a useful window into the underlying dynamics and mechanisms of rural transformation, uh, both in China, but also, you know, elsewhere. Uh, where you know the the intensity of the urban rural intersection and those those urban rural contradictions, uh, the political battle that ensues, um, all of that helps to you know peel back the layer of social harmony that often is used to you know paper over the the dramatic stakes and the intense contestation uh, and the consequences of, of things like urban-rural coordination or rural urbanization. Uh, and so, you know, to, to borrow a phrase from uh, Claude Levi-Strauss, um, I think Heilong is, uh, it's good to think with, right? It is, it offers a productive site in which to critically re-examine uh, the the structuring forces and mechanisms that underlie social change uh, in many places in China today, even though the sort of superficial expression of those forces and mechanisms might appear quite different in different places. Uh, and and frankly, I, I think you know those implications extend all the way to you know even the mountainous hinterlands of Guizhou. Um, right. So, uh, you know, I very much enjoyed uh, your recent article in Social Analysis on, you know, preservation and planning um, in this uh, Dong village uh, in Guizhou. Um, and I found it super interesting where, you know, one of the objectives of that process, one of the, the sort of ideas that, you know, these um, these architect scholars came into the village with was this idea of planning a a, a Chinese traditional village. And, and in fact, I would argue, even as, you know, as you mentioned, right, like the, the networks are still in place, right? There's, um, there's still a relationship between the living and the dead, all of that still exists. Um, but I would argue that even that idea of the Chinese traditional village and the idea of coming in and planning it, uh, is itself an expression of the underlying dynamics that drive the transformation of villages like Heilong, and that we see unfolding through things like urban-rural coordination and new type urbanization and rural revitalization. Because, you know, and, and this is one of the arguments I make in the book, rural urbanization doesn't necessarily only look like high-rise apartments and industrial estates. Sometimes it looks like that, right? As, as in Heilong. But sometimes it looks like industrialized farms where villagers work as wage laborers instead of as small producer households. Sometimes it looks like ecological protection zones that you know, are where you know, any form of grassroots rural development uh, is in fact forbidden. Uh, so that cities can benefit from, you know, clean air and water and ecological services. Uh, sometimes it looks like 
aestheticized cultural villages that are that can end up being frozen in time and disnified as museum pieces, ultimately for the the consumption and um, enjoyment of urban tourists. And all of these things are ultimately urban logics and urban imaginations that are projected onto a rural landscape. So, you know, it might still look rural, it might still smell rural, it might even administratively still be designated as rural, um, but it's no longer necessarily the, what I would call the unruly rural that serves to organize villagers' lives and livelihoods and has done for generations, right? That has been the sort of fundamental basis for the social contract in rural China. Um, instead, you know, what we get in, you know, in these various places are these rural simulacra um, that are filled with urban ideologies of productivity and romanticism and nostalgia. Um, and, you know, it, I think it's important to point out that that transformation that I described is not, right, it's not done. It's not a fait accompli. It's still, it's still happening across China and it is happening in a, a myriad of different ways, right? We see it in, um, in quite different forms in, you know, every different corner of rural China. Um, it's also not to say that it's necessarily good or bad, right? It's just different. Um, but I think it is a difference that is important to observe and, um, and bring forward because it's a difference that has a real impact on the people who live in these villages, many of whom you know, are deeply unsettled and disoriented by the rapidity of, of this transformation. Um, and it's in large part that experience that I'm trying to um, communicate in the book to share sort of how these transformations are understood and navigated uh, and contested on the ground. Great, thank you so much, Nick. That was, that was a fantastic way of um, concluding the conversation and, and, the, and the main objectives of your book. But before I let you go, um, I wanted to ask you about what you've been working on and thinking about these days. What kind of projects have you been doing since The End of the Village was published? Yeah, well, so I've been, um, I've been busy settling in uh, at Barnard College, uh, which has been great. I have a great uh, group of colleagues and students here uh, in the urban studies and architecture programs. Uh, one of the classes I teach here is um, it's entitled Urbanizing China. And so that you know, very much draws on the themes we've been talking about, um, questions of urban-rural relations that are you know, the subject of the book. Um, I've also been uh, working with a group of students here looking at uh, something called One Village, One Product. Uh, which is uh, this other policy program that's sort of part of uh, urban-rural coordination, uh, and also doing some you know, comparative work looking at uh, other patterns of village transformation elsewhere uh, in Asia, outside China. Uh, my main research projects uh, since uh, leaving uh, Chongqing, though, uh, has been um, focused on the history of the Shoko Industrial Zone. Uh, so this is um, you know, now uh, a part of the city of Shenzhen, 
Um, you know, most people who um, who have been to Shuko probably don't uh, might not even realize that it is sort of is distinct from the rest of Shenzhen. But in fact, uh, the Shuko Industrial Zone uh, preceded the establishment of the the Shenzhen Special Economic Zone uh, by you know almost a year in 1979, um, and it was one of the very first places that urbanized uh, during the post-1978 reform period. And so Shoko served as this kind of like urban laboratory um, for China to experiment with um, new practices of urban development and planning and governance uh, in the context of uh, market liberalization and, and reform. And we find you know, some of the earliest instances of housing commodification and real estate development there. Uh, and interestingly, a number of, um, you know, really quite dramatic experiments in democratic governance, uh, which, you know, were eventually abandoned in the late 1980s, but are, you know, also sort of part of um, the, the process of transformation uh, in this place. Um, so, you know, like Hailong, it's very distinctive, uh, but it offers, you know, this, this really interesting opportunity to start to pull apart what was happening in the early reform era uh, and try to better understand, uh, you know, the origins and the underlying logics of China's rapid urbanization that we've seen um, over the last 40 years. Well, that sounds so fascinating and um, I really look forward to reading and hearing more about it as it unfolds. Um, Nick, thank you so much for taking your time aside and um, joining us today um, and being so um, so engaging and informative with all the with opening up the contents of your book for both me and our listeners. So thank you for joining us, Nick. Thanks, Suvi. I really enjoyed it. And thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to New Books and Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone. Good, goodbye.